This is Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform. I've got kind of a treat for you guys tonight. This is going to be the first time ever that we've really put out anything related to our coaches certification for mass consumption. And we're going to not try and get too geeky with you guys, but this is going to be a pretty advanced level conversation. What we are doing here is reviewing the first five weeks of you know, our coaches certification for Eat Perform. And as many of you know, if you've been following the podcast or if you're a member, that the basis for Eat to Perform is that you're eating an adequate amount for what you do. And what's nice about it, especially if you're tracking, you know, and we'll we'll maybe talk a little bit about how to do it without tracking too. But if you're tracking, it allows you to establish a baseline and then you can then use that baseline to find calorie balance. Um, and once you have that calorie balance, then you can kind of manipulate it. We'll talk about some of the problems with that. We'll talk about some of the some of the advanced solutions and, and things of that nature. So Mike, did you want to say hi? The first five weeks, just so you guys know, um, is really kind of more nutritional in, in idea. We talk a lot about you know uh, carb cycling. Mike did his dissertation on it. It's called metabolic flexibility. Metabolic flexibility. And it's basically where the majority of your carbohydrates are going to be consumed on the days that you work out, and then you know you would rely on fat for um, most of your rest days. So, Mike, did you want to kind of give just kind of you don't have to do the super introduction, but just kind of give the basic ideas. Yeah, so the big sort of overall arching concept is metabolic flexibility. So a lot of people online are arguing about, oh, you only need to use carbohydrates, and oh, you only need to use fat and do this, you know, super low fat diet, whatever. Oh, well, my performance now sucks. What do I do? Um, and the reality is your body is pretty elegantly designed when it's healthy and working well to actually use both of them. But the catch being that you will never be able to fuel extreme intense exercise with fat. Even if you're super fat adapted, it's just a biochemical fact that at some point fat cannot keep up with that rate of energy production. So at that point, you definitely want to use carbohydrates. However, if you're just going to walk it around doing low intensity activities, you actually want that activity to primarily be fueled by fat. So in essence, you want fat for lower intensity, carbohydrate for higher intensity. Metabolic flexibility is how well can you use both of those under the right case, so use the right fuel at the right time, and then how fast can you switch back and forth between them? So an example would be like during a weight training session, you're doing some five by five deadlifts. So when you're lifting the weight during that set, that's actually primarily carbohydrates, just to keep it simple. There's some ATP, CP going on there too. But during the rest period, you're actually using more fat metabolism at that point. So exercise, such as a weight training in a healthy individual, is actually causing you to shift back and forth between those two fuels, which is a good thing. And one of the things that Mike mentions in our live seminars, we don't do a lot of them. Um, you know, most of our live meetups, we tend to be a little bit more social, but we actually have done a few of them. And one of the great things that, that Mike says that I think is really important for you guys as you're talking to athletes or if you are an athlete and you're trying to get better is that it's not like a switch. 
you know, and you're not, you're not switching, you know, on from carbs or on to fat. That's sort of like the, the click banky or, you know, the, um, the, the headlines that everyone uses to get you guys to click those articles, right? But it really isn't how it works. You're really sort of pushing it in one direction rather than it going fully to carbohydrates or fully to fats. Yeah, I think of it as I used to DJ for many years in college. So the old school DJ, right? So you've seen you've got, you know, vinyl on each side and you've got your little fader switch in between moving from one to the next. Right. So if you've got fats on one side, carbs on the other side, in essence, you're just changing the percentage back and forth. You know, like Paul said, it's virtually impossible to be absolutely 100% fat and almost impossible to be 100% carbohydrates. In reality, someone's kind of in, in between somewhere. And you can do things to sort of push it one direction or the other, but it's not like a on and off light switch in your house. It's more like a, a fader back and forth between the two. So kind of adjusting your fuel blend, so to speak. And we do have a great question about when you would look at fats com compared to carbohydrates that I'll, I'll bring up here in a little bit. Um, in case you didn't know, I don't think you actually said it, but um, the person that you're hearing in the beginning is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. And then the other resident PhD here is, well, actually we have one other, um, is uh, Dr. Brad Dieter. Brad, did you want to say hello? Yeah, hi everybody. Um, I am in charge of kind of the the next part of the course. It's a little more programming, um, and we talk a little bit more about uh, energy systems in terms of programming, and then programming for different types of training. And we get into the weeds of all those things. So when Mike does kind of the nutrition piece um, in the beginning, I do a little bit more of the programming piece in the course. Well, and I think one of the things that that most people are and, and this is probably a great thing to mention in comparison to the work that, you know, the coaches already see is Brad's emphasis, you know, you hate saying it like this because it sounds like a little, a little too pushy, but it really is how you would program for fat loss, right? And so a lot of the considerations that, that you know, aren't really factored in is sort of like what Mike said, you know, if you're too low carb, you know, well, that's going to hurt performance. If you're too high carb, you know, that might not be favorable for other things. Similar to training, right? I think that uh, one of the, one of the, um, you know, people's tendency is to want to show up at the gym, work out for an hour, you know, in the case of CrossFit or like Orange Theory or whatever, they'll have like a, a pre-programmed workout. And I think the the argument that we make, and, and specifically Brad makes in a very eloquent way in the next five weeks, is that if you can take those concepts and then use some other ideas as well, like for instance, if you're doing high intensity work and that's 10 to 15 minutes a day, Sometimes volume gets compromised there, right? And it's okay if volume does get compromised because sometimes that's all you have, right? That's the only time available. But if you know then that there are some, some other things that you can practice, then that also will be um, favorable. So let's just jump right into how someone might calculate 
their calories. And we have an e form calculator, and I'll just go by what, what I do, and then Mike and Brad, you can both give your suggestion. Um, in general, when we're looking to set a baseline, one of the one of the participants mentioned like the way that the Olympic uh, lifting facility, the way that they come up with it. That's really probably no different. I mean, I'll tell you my way. Mike will tell you his way. Brad will tell you his way. All of which might be a little bit different, but we're all probably going to come up with a pretty similar solution because all we're really trying to do is come up with a baseline and then once we have that baseline then we kind of make changes as the client needs those changes made right so when you look at the calculator okay the calculator has a few flaws in fact we're you know Brad has a calculator that we've been working on for a little bit it's actually quite good but we're you know kind of wondering whether or not we want to you know put that wildly available or just to um, just through our programming because the problem that you run into we see the the interform calculator could not be more simple right we have a video talking to you how to use the interform calculator and we still get tons of questions brad's calculator is 10 times more complicated than that and so what do you think is going to happen if we implement brad's calculator right it's going to the, the questions are become, will become exponential. So as a general rule, I would say for an average athlete, average female athlete, I'm probably going to start at 75 grams of fats. For an average um, male athlete, 100 grams of fats. That's because the e-perform calculator is relatively inflexible. Otherwise, you'd have this huge drop-down. In general, though... Most people would be able to set it based on roughly um, half of your body weight in fats, right? So that tends to be a good line. If you if you look at myself, if I set myself up at a, at 100 grams, um, you know, being 180 pounds, I would actually be 90 grams in that scenario. So it's easy to kind of adjust the math from that point, that standpoint. I'm assuming that most people know um, through our course. Or maybe if you don't know, if you're listening to the podcast, a fat gram is basically nine grams. And we could go into the weeds with all that stuff. But in general, we're just trying to give you guys some basic information. So if you were looking at a smaller athlete, as an example, you know, for a female, you know, who's 120 pounds, you know, uh, the only option might be 50 grams. And then you would have to do the math, you know, um, by hand, right? Um any thoughts on on that, Mike? I mean, I'll let you start, and then Brad. You know, Brad is actually a coach with me in the group coaching program, and so uh, you know, it, it's always nice to kind of you know see how each of us kind of comes to very similar conclusions. Yeah. So how I look at it is basically from research and then also practical experience too, and it's pretty close. Um, like Paul said, I'll normally set protein first. It usually doesn't vary that much from one person to the next per se. It's, it's pretty stable. Uh, the minimum is about 0.7 grams per pound of body weight. Where the number comes from, it was basically from four studies, although Stu Phillips just did a recent study too that comes pretty close to that. 
Um, it's from an academic textbook. I did a chapter in uh, dietary protein and resistance exercise. And what you find is that was the minimum number in this group. And granted, these were not elite athletes. They were not weight training super hard. But it was a minimum to keep them from losing lean body mass if you just randomly took their calories and chopped them above half overnight. So that's where that number comes from. Um, you can go up to around a gram per pound of body weight. It's probably a little bit on the higher side, but you're looking at 0.7 to 1 uh, gram per pound of body weight for protein. Um, usually after that, I will try a moderate amount of fats. Um, pretty similar to what Paul does um, for an average male. You know, you're looking at like 60 to 80 grams, somewhere around there. I do tend to start a little bit lower on fat, but definitely not low fat by any stretch of the imagination. Can and I just can I the... can I just interrupt for just a second? Because what I yeah. was what I was saying was based off of the way that the eat form calculator is set up. The way Correct. that Mike is saying it, he's actually just manually doing it, right? Correct. And so yes. so so that that's the distinction there. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and then from there, usually the rest will be carbohydrates, and then. The big question that people get all the time is like, oh my gosh, so I have this set, what do I do over time? So the things I look at is primarily their performance and then generally body composition. Again, that could be measurements on a tape, it could be weight, you know, pictures, things like that. And I'm looking at if their performance is going up, their body composition is, you know, about where it wants to be or stable, they're probably doing pretty good. If their performance for whatever reason, assuming the other stressors are good, their program is good, is starting to trend down, my first thought is, hmm, maybe they don't have enough carbohydrates. So I may increase the amount of carbohydrates at that point. On the flip side, if performance is really good and the body composition seems to be deteriorating rapidly, again, assuming everything else is the same, I may actually scale back a little bit on their carbohydrates, but I'm gonna watch their performance. I don't want their performance to all of a sudden, you know, go in the crapper right away either. So the key points is what I use to monitor it over time is looking at their performance and then generally their body composition. And what I find is that most people in general do a little bit better on slightly more carbohydrates, um, moderate fat. Although I have had a couple athletes where their fat was almost the same level as their carbohydrates. I would say that's generally more rare, but there are some people out there who do work a little bit better on more fat and less carbohydrates. So. There's a little individual variation there too. So what I'm trying to do, Mike, is is establish sort of like some basic rules because I think that that's what a lot of people are sort of struggling with. And I think that the way that Mike just described it is exactly the way it is, right? You know, there there is one caveat that I would throw out there that as a gym owner or somebody working with an athlete trying to get them to perform better, right? And, and if we believe that performance is, you know, really should be a hallmark for what they're trying to do, you know, we really want to focus on kind of their total daily energy expenditure. We use, you know, calculations to come up with that. Um, basically, the, the three formulas we use, you know, the catch McArdle, you know, the... What are the three basic ones? Can you guys? I can pull There's it up. Harris Benedict and there, was there you go. I think. So, yeah. yeah, Harris Harris Benedict and Catch McCardle are really the two most relevant. I would say the 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 two that most people use. So basically, what what 
what Mike said is 0.7 for protein. I think uh, establishing half a body weight in fats is a good baseline. It sort of depends on the athlete. Like Mike mentioned, you would want to kind of play with that a little bit, but you got to start somewhere, right? And so that's the that's the basic idea. Brad, any thoughts on on kind of maybe something that we could add to this equation that might might help people? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, Paul, you and Mike and I all kind of come at it from a little bit different, but our end answer is usually almost identical. So kind of like what I do is I first try to figure out, you know, what is going to be their total daily energy expenditure. Um, and I usually use a calculator in some of my own experience, um, but usually mostly just start with a calculator. And then I set the protein first, like Mike does. Um, and then what I do is then I try to, I try to match their carb intake to the type of training and the amount of training they do. Um, and that's just because it's, for me, it's easier to do the, the finish it up with the fats. Um, so I usually go carbs is the, the next way. And it usually ends up, you know, between two to four grams per pound um, is kind of usually a range where they end up. Somebody who's, you know, uh, a high volume, high activity level person is going to be more towards the four. Um, somebody who's, you know, looking to lean out and is only training three, four days a week doing, you know, 40 minutes of, of gym session kind of stuff. Um, they're usually towards the two grams per, per pound. And then I usually round out. Per kilo. So if I had uh, a 200 pound person, would they be at like 800 grams of carbs? Is that right? I just want to oh, make sorry. sure. No, right. sorry, kilos. Yeah. Uh, all right. That, that makes more sense. <laughs> <laughs> so per kilos. Um, and then, and then what I would do is then round it out in fats. And that usually ends up right you know, right around 40 to 50% of their body weight um, is kind of usually where it ends up. So it's just basically what Paul does, but just reverse engineered. Yeah. The reason why I do it that way is just because that's the way that the Ethan form calculator has been yeah. set up, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, you know, if you watch the video on the Ethan form calculator, if you're listening to this podcast and going, what the hell is the Ethan form calculator? It's basically, you know, just go to ethanform.com, Ethan form calculator. And there's a little video that I, that I talk about, you know, how I do it and then some basic parameters. But the, the, the point being, that you need to come up with some type of baseline. So one of the things that, and, and and basically what we've come up with at this point are some general rules, which is 0.7 protein, which is, you know, uh, you know, as we're all talking, I'm sure we're all thinking, well, there is this one case scenario, you know what I mean? Like for a s smaller framed athlete, you know, a lot of times their protein can be much closer to, to one gram. So kind of keep those things in mind. You, you definitely want to default to 0.7. I would argue that you could actually default even lower than that for an athlete with a lot of fat to use, right? Because mm -hmm. their lean mass might not be up to that point. And then trying to get them to eat, you know, 210 grams of protein can be a little difficult, right? So it just depends on the size of the athlete. So Brad's... Um, Brad's basically coming at it from the standpoint of a multiplier for carbohydrates based on what the athlete is doing. So what I'm going to do is sort of introduce you guys to what we do for clients and ultimately how we sort of try and give them 
kind of a guideline for where to start and then how to move. And it was something that we covered up in, in covered in um, in depth in the modules. And it's basically trying to reverse diet people to where their metabolism becomes a little bit more advanced and actually they're sort of recovering from a lot of the damage damage that you know dieting might have done over the years. You know, there's some argument there, right? I mean, I think from a scientific standpoint, some of the adrenal stuff can get a little carried away and then people almost sort of make themselves into victims and then like they're broken, you know? And Mike was really one of the, the, the best examples to where if you focus on, you know, eating an adequate amount, doing, and trying to build muscle in that process, no matter what your age is, right? If you're coming from a very deficient way of eating for, let's say, 40 years, you know, and you're, you're 65 years old, we actually had an athlete that, you know, in six weeks, we were able to put six pounds of muscle on her, you know, in a bod pod. Are we like magical? No, not really. I mean, she, you know, was under eating for a long time. She had been avoiding carbohydrates for a long time. And so once we introduced a moderate amount of carbohydrates into her way of eating, it helped kind of that protein turnover, rehydrate muscles, and, you know, in a lab that showed up favorably. Um, so I think that I think the key point is from Brad's standpoint, when you're looking at a multiplier of anywhere from from, I mean, if we were if we were looking at pounds, because I think kilos is going to get a little confusing for people. I mean, because I've I've heard anywhere from one to three, you know, mm -hmm. being that the three is going to be kind of like your excessive, um, you know. CrossFit games athlete type folks, and one might be more just like your average person working out. Because you know, if we go 0.7 for protein, half for fats, and then we go anywhere from one to three on carbs. The problem with carbs, okay, is everyone thinks they're carb resistant, and it's sort of a self fulfilling prophecy, right? If you think you're carb resistant, naturally you are. Carbs come with a tax, basically anywhere from three grams to four grams of water for each one. We've brought that up every single time. Um, and it always kind of gets a little confusing uh, what we're talking about there. But when you do that, if you have some level of cycling where you're relying a little bit more on fats on your rest days, you can actually process that water, brings it into the cell, and then you can use it for exercise. That's sort of the basis, basic idea of creatine, right? where it helps kind of get water into the cell and make it more useful. Any thoughts on those basic concepts before we sort of move on to the next phase? Um, yeah, just uh, four kilograms converted to um, pound, uh, grams, four grams per kilo to grams per pound is about 1.8. So not quite three. Um, it's closer to closer to two. So I, the only the only thing I'm thinking I'm, I'm just thinking to myself I'm a housewife listening to this podcast and we're the ones supposed to be making things less confusing for people and then they're like yeah. they're like oh my god I gotta break out my abacus to figure out how many damn carbs I'm supposed to eat on a daily basis so let me talk I to you the metric system yeah well or <laughs> or um 
or empirical. Yeah, it's actually the opposite, I would, <laughs> I would think. If we were all metric, it would be better. So here's what we do uh, from the standpoint of e-to-perform as we sort of give clients guidelines. What we try to do is we, we ask people uh, how many calories they eat are eating now. And for the most part, people are able to give us a relatively decent guess. And then we take the calculator and sort of bring them to those numbers. Now, every athlete's different. Like we talked about in the modules, lots of considerations as it relates to reverse dieting. But the most basic idea, let's say that you go to the e-to-form calculator and you see that your athlete, and, and this, is, this is probably the biggest thing that everyone needs to hear because what they're hearing is well they're sort of wanting to put we were getting questions week one you know how should i set my you know the calculator for my athlete well we don't set calculators for the athlete that quickly right we start them off where they're at you know so we don't say to someone that's been eating 1300 calories yeah, your total daily energy expenditure says you're supposed to be eating 2,400 calories. So boom, go and do that, right? Um, so we walk people gradually through that process. Now, depending on the athlete, you know, depending on their athletic ability, depending on you know how long they've been dieting, that process might take a while, right? Mike, can you talk about some considerations there? Because but I, but the one basic point that I want everyone to hear is that when we provide a client a guideline, we start where they're at and then move them to their total daily energy expenditure. Now, there's another important part because people say this all the time. What if my client's been overeating? And a lot of times they base that on the fact that they have fat that they would like to be rid of, right? So therefore, they're assuming that they're overeating if they're overeating their total daily energy expenditure, they will lose weight. They will lose fat in that process, right? That's just basic math, you know, basic science. What's happening in the case of a lot of your clients, though, their metabolism isn't quite where their total daily energy is, expenditure is at that point, and therefore they kind of land in this gray area. So what we're trying to do is sort of establish kind of a safe ground where we go okay with this amount of activity with this amount of food now we know what we're working with any thoughts on that that mike yeah i think the key point there is that it's uh slow movement over time so someone like example yeah, it was a 1300 and maybe we want to get them up to say 2700 just to pick numbers we don't go oh just double what you eat right now well that's, obviously that's not going to go so well right they're unless they're an extreme outlier, their metabolism's not gonna be able to keep up with that. Um, so it's a slow process of slowly adding more. Along the way, we wanna see them hopefully increasing their performance, doing more weight, doing more volume, doing more exercise. Um, the question people always have is like, well, how long is the process? And again, it varies a lot from one person to the next. It could be you know, as short as a few weeks, which is very rare, but usually it's several months. Um, and if you've been, you know, at a very low level for years, it's probably going to be many months, you know, to get back up there. Um, I have never seen that it's the same number as where you have been in the past. So say, for example, you've been really below for like two years. 
it's probably not going to be two years to get back to a better number. It's probably going to be several months, though, maybe six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, maybe even be a little bit longer. To give it, um, to give it just the one, one quick example, mm-hmm. one of the basic ideas that we have is, is you know, 100 calories a week. So in the case of Mike's example where the athletes eating 1,300 and we're going to move them to 2,700, that's 14 weeks, folks. That's three and a half yeah. months. Okay. And then there are athletes, you know, if they've been dieting for a long time, that it does take a while. One of the things that I'll often say to clients is that, look, you've given your whole life to starvation. Can't you give us three months? Right. And I think that that is kind of one of those things that kind of rings a bell into people's head. So I didn't want to interrupt you, but I thought that that was good because there are a lot of athletes that would be much better off moving with 50 and then taking the six months, just yeah. allowing themselves to recover. And and really, you know, the work capacity side of things, I'll get in one thing that way I don't keep interrupting you. But anecdotally, I will say I've seen many, many times that the better the athlete, the 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 quicker the recovery period is so if you really emphasize the work capacity side of things actually they're on facebook right now all day long you know there's been like pictures of eddie lacy um and you know he was kind of overweight as a green bay packer if you don't know who eddie lacy is he's a running back for the green bay packer and they were kind of you know uh talking about how he um you know was overweight and so out of season he is getting back in shape and they were showing his pictures and he had done P90X and all this other type of stuff as if P90X was the big secret. The real big secret is that Eddie Lacy is a damn good athlete and he has the ability to draw off of great work capacity because he's been upping his work capacity his whole damn life. If since 12 years old you've been dieting and performance hasn't been a priority in your life, then we got to try and figure that out. Right. So that that that's what I wanted to bring up. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And that in general, so one of the positive markers you'll see is as people add a little more calories back in, if they get a better sort of bang for their buck for performance wise, usually the process will be a little bit slower. I should say a little bit faster, actually, compared to someone who has to go slower, doesn't quite see as much of an increase in performance. Um, it's going to take them, you know, a little bit longer to get back up there. Yeah, and I think that the other thing, you know, before we kind of move on to Brad, is, uh, you know, total daily energy, you know, applies to dogs and aliens and and really anything, you know. Um, and so what I think a lot of people are going to hear as we're talking is athlete, 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 you know, and you know, what we're really talking about is improving the human condition. And we're calling that athleticism. But, you know, if you've been kind of struggling and plateaued and all this other type of stuff, that's really the discussion we're having, right? Brad, any any thoughts um, as we're talking about, especially like, you know, I would say that the dieting part is probably the easiest part for most people. Like for most people, you know, here's my basic calorie balance. If I suck it up and starve myself, I can get to five or six pounds less, right? But it's really that that process of sort of keeping 
that way off that we're really talking about that I think is is what what Eat to Perform brings to the table that almost no one else does. You know, it's a very very it's a it's a topic that that doesn't get covered a lot. Tracy Mann would argue, Tracy Mann, Dr. Tracy Mann for the University of Minnesota would argue that they don't do it because their business model is based on you constantly failing. I agree with that a little bit, but I also am not that skeptical. <laughs> um, Brad, any thoughts on as we're trying to to, to acclimate athletes? Yeah, so I think, um, Paul, you mentioned a, a little bit separate topic, but I, I kind of want to touch on that too. Um, but I want to first address the one of the hard parts is, you know, as we're trying to bring people kind of back to a, a normal level, um, and we have to take these incremental steps, is the best analogy I can tell anybody is, you know, the, the training piece, right? It's, I mean, I just like to make the you know, we start out at 1,300 calories, then we get you to 2,700 calories. It's just like if you haven't lifted a weight in 20 years and you want to back squat 400 pounds and you can squat the bar today, I put 400 pounds on your back, it's going to break you in half. But, you know, we put the bar today, we go to 55 tomorrow, you know, 65 a week from now, and we slowly bring you up. You know, your body's going to adapt and you're eventually going to become somebody who you know, can handle the, that amount of food and who has an increased work capacity and your body can thrive. Um, so just always keep that idea in the back of your head is the, the analogies are the same, right? You have a system that responds to things and you have to treat it the same. My, uh, my guess is that a lot of people listening to this are going to listen to 2700 and go, who's he talking about? Most people don't understand that your total daily energy expenditure is probably a lot higher. You know, I mean, one of the things that we brought up in, in, in one of our articles is that all of these calculators that are all these activity trackers that everybody's using, what an activity tri tracker is trying to do is calculate your total daily energy expenditure each day, right? And like we're saying, you know, what I think people want is Give me the formula so I can have eight-pack abs. And what we're saying is that formula is not as easy as you think it is. You know, but hopefully we're making the case for, you know, if if you're around people and you're able to kind of explore more questions and answers, that ends up being positive. Yeah. So I said real quick on the yeah. athlete comment too that I got from Dr. Cobb that I I agree with him that all all people are athletes since everybody uses their body to make a living. There's just probably different levels of athletes from you know, people that are you know a little bit lower to people that are a little bit higher. But I, I I like to think of people as everyone is an athlete. There's just many different types. Well, and I think the other thing too is is when someone asks me, you know, why do I need to maintain and build muscle? Why is that even important? So well for death reasons, right? <laughs> like, like you're trying to live, you know? And so, you know, having, uh, you know, addressing, you know, skeletal muscle mass, you know, is fairly important as it relates to longevity of life. And so in that way, you're, you're all athletes, you know, uh, which can be kind of a difficult conversation to have, but you know, the, uh, we're, we're still going to have it, you know, we're still going to always make the case for eating an adequate amount for what you do, and that once you know that number, then you can move from there. And then constantly guessing 
is sort of leaving you kind of lost and confused, right? And and that's why so many people are, are struggling. The last thing I'm going to say on the reverse dieting concept that I think is really important, especially for people, you know, one of the things we had, a, we had an athlete um, who had lost 80 pounds. And the first thing I said to her is, as you start to normalize, you have to expect a little weight gain, right? And, you know, when you're losing, you know, that amount of weight, you know, and, and you're really in that process, you know, you're trying to find some kind of balance where um, your metabolism gets compromised, you know, because, you know, you're, you're trying to address fat loss overall. And when you start to pursue athleticism, more work, your work isn't going to catch up necessarily to where your food is, even if you're, you know, just adding in a moderate amount of carbohydrates, right? So you have to sort of keep that in mind as you're talking to people that have lost a great deal of weight. You have to allow for a little bit of weight gain, right? And the, the, the slower you're willing to back out of it, the more chance for success you will have, right? Because what, what I think happens for people is they go, I want to reset my metabolism. You know what I mean? All the buzzwords that everyone uses, I want to reset my metabolism. What they're really saying is I want to reset my metabolism so I can diet again as soon as possible. Well, you know, you have to, you have to go, you have to, you know, realize you started somewhere, you know, and, and you can't ignore that in that process, right? Um, any, any thoughts on that before we sort of move on? Because we're going to start answering questions. So we had a great question, which I, I love this one. First question, at what point would you start raising fats to meet calories as opposed to continually adding carbs and take a bit more of a moderate approach? I think what's funny about this question is that it is suggesting that we're talking about something more than a moderate approach to carbohydrates, right? I mean, I can't recall having a CrossFit Games athlete, which ends up being someone that works out three to four days a week, even as a male, where I've ever recommended over 500 grams of, of carbohydrates. And that's for like the fittest of the fit and the people doing the most of the most, right? So I think we should go into this with the assumption that we're talking about moderate carbohydrates. And if we're having, we're starting from that place, now we could go, well, how can we adjust fats? Because frankly, I don't think we get enough credit for that part of what we teach people. And mm -hmm. that is something that is a very big part of each reform. People just focus on the carbohydrates part as if that's like the end all be all. Well, we've been talking about fats since day one. We've never been a negative fat person, right? But people sort yeah. of want to, whenever you start talking about moderate carbohydrates, now all of a sudden you're, you're you know, he mentioned carbohydrates. Clearly, you know, he's meaning cake and Oreos all the time. And, and that's really not what he performs about. I have a I have a perfect kind of case study or example from a, it was a coaching call this week um, that might be able to kind of put this in context and answer the question. So you know, we had somebody who's a, a fairly lean individual and is trying to put some some weight on um, their frame and trying to improve their performance and 
um, gain some muscle. And we've kind of gotten their protein at, you know, about a, we were actually at about 1.2 grams per pound, um, fairly high, but they were a, they're a fairly small person. So it's not that I'm seeing them out. Um, we kind of, in my opinion, maxed out their carb intake. Um, you know, they were at about, about 350 and that was, that was quite a bit for their size and their frame. And, um, they kind of hit a plateau in the weight gain and they just couldn't get any more weight on. So it's like, well, we need to get more energy dense foods in your diet. We need to have some more And this calories. is, this is it's someone protein. trying to gain weight though, Brad, right? Yeah. So okay. this is, this isn't somebody who you've, you've maxed out their carbs. Um, this is a situation where adding some fats in is the appropriate way to go because adding more carbs probably isn't going to be that beneficial for performance. Um, we need some additional fuel. So fats are completely appropriate. Yeah. Like I just want go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> no, I just yeah, I just wanted to bring up you know the fact that you're talking about someone that's wanting to gain weight because I think a lot yeah. of the people listening to this are going to be people that want to either you know that want to address want to lose fat and so mm -hmm. I think that that's important. I think a great example for Jared would be a runner. So if you're running marathon type numbers, right? So you have a long day where you're doing 18 to 20 miles. You know, I'm trying to remember the percentages, but roughly you're looking at about 10 to 15% is going to be coming from carbohydrate. So let's say that you're running a 5K, so 3.2 miles. Well, you really didn't tap those carbohydrates near as much so you can rely on fats a little bit more. In the case of somebody running 18 miles, even though you know they're not tapping a, a lot of carbohydrates, the amount of mileage, the amount of work is going to ultimately draw them into more of a glycolytic way of doing things. And so you have to replenish some glucose in that scenario. One of the things that we'll often hear, especially when we put out anything related to carbohydrates, is... I've heard that you can do long endurance based on, you know, using mostly fats. And I would say that as someone that does a fair amount of long running, um, I do create, I do crave like salted almonds and stuff like that. But what I, what ultimately I'm craving is sort of what Brad was saying. I'm doing a lot of work, so I'm craving, I'm, I'm craving calories, Right. I'm, I'm craving, you know, and when you look at a calorie, you know, fat, what a fat is or almond is, is a calorie dense source. And so when I do my long runs, I have some level of carbohydrates and then I always include some level of fats. Uh, in the case of, of, of a shorter run, like just a tempo run or something like that, I don't do anything. You know what I mean? I don't change anything at all because I don't need to. You know, I can rely on store bodily fat in that scenario. Any thoughts on that? Because I think it is a great question because I think that there's a lot of people, when you look at something like CrossFit, right? CrossFit is very glycolytic at times. And so if you're, you're really operating really close to your red line, you're going to be looking at drawing almost all your energy from carbohydrates at that point. But like Mike was saying, it's it's even if you even if that percentage was 80%, okay, and let's say that that 80% was for 15 minutes, and in that time period you burned 300 um, calories. 
that would be 240 calories from carbohydrates. If your calorie consumption for the day is something like 2200, it's still a very small piece, right? And we're not just trying to, by the way, replenish carbohydrates. You know, there's many functions in your body that are using carbohydrates other than just your muscles and trying to replenish glucose. So kind of keep that in mind as we start talking about adding glucose. But any, any other thoughts on fats? Because I, I really feel like I, I really feel like sometimes people think we're anti-fat. And, and I mean, I just had a, a ribeye. So, <laughs> you know. I think it's just trying to restore the balance, you know, is I think where historically where Eat to Perform came into the scene um, was kind of restoring balance to uh, restoring order to the force, so to speak. So, yeah. Yeah, because if the you look at if you look at Weight Watchers, basically most people defaulted to low fat. Then, you know, with low carb and paleo, really people you know, we, we had so many athletes that we were working with when they started tracking them. Um, they were eating 275 to 300 grams of fat to meet their, their daily energy requirements. And, you know, once we brought that down to kind of a realistic level, you know, and then introduced carbohydrates, you know, I mean, we had a, we had a great example of, of a, a, a athlete who had been sort of struggling to get to regionals and, um, he was kind of on like 25 blocks for somebody that was like a really active person. So roughly about 2,500 calories and like contrary to everything we just talked about, he ended up going to 4,500 calories, like within two weeks, ended up losing 10 pounds faster than anybody that I'd ever seen. And then, you know, ended up, you know, qualifying for regionals. And so, you know, just that introduction, and, and we have so many stories like that where, you know, there was a lot of people coming in trying to use fats for fuel unsuccessfully, and we just made that little tweak and it made all the difference in the world. Any thoughts? I just have one quick comment too yeah, on yeah. the endurance thing. Um, a lot of that actually depends on the intensity of the run that you're doing. So if you're the average person, you're just going to go run an average 3K and probably 50-50 fat to carbohydrate. Now, if you're an elite 5K runner, man, you're friggin' sprinting the whole time, right? So you're probably using mostly carbs, right? Even at a marathon level, if you look at the people who are winning the marathon, they are primarily using almost all carbohydrates because they're running so friggin' fast. But if you have someone else who their goal is just to do a more moderate pace relative to where they're at, I would argue that pushing them to use more fat is probably going to be more beneficial. So again, it depends on, you know, what is your goal? And then also what is the intensity of that activity for you? Yeah, I think that's a great qualifier. So Mike, how do you know when you found the sweet spot for protein? For protein? Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Um, a couple of things I look at is muscle soreness. Not a lot of data to support that, but anecdotally, I have seen some people who are very low in protein tend to get a lot more sore. I've increased their protein, and they've done a lot better on that. Um, also, satiety. We know protein helps a lot with you know making sure people aren't like overly hungry. A lot of times, just having them eat more protein, they tend to eat less of other things, which tends to be beneficial too. Um, 
There is some data, not to confuse people, but in more advanced athletes, uh, Stu Phillips has suggested this, that they may actually need a little bit less protein. So paradoxically, I have some more advanced athletes who may only get, you know, 150, 160 grams per day, and they're a 220, 230 pound athlete. Again, that's usually not the rule. Um, but the reason I mentioned that is that I want people to all of a sudden freak out and go, oh my gosh, I didn't get my you know, 0.7 grams of protein today, all my muscle tissue is going to fall off. Um, it doesn't appear that way. Once I mean, again, I've had a yeah. lot of days where I've been at, you know, I'm about 230 and I've been at 150, 160. And I've actually done that for a couple months, just more out of curiosity. And as long as it's pretty high quality sources, I didn't notice a huge difference, to be honest. I was a little more hungry, but recovery wise, performance wise, I didn't notice a massive difference. So just now, something to keep in mind. Now, Brad, wouldn't there be an argument, because I think we've had this discussion, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, wouldn't there be an argument actually in the reversing stage where protein kind of, like the negatives related to carbohydrates and fats tend to be much higher than they are for protein. So if you can tolerate protein, especially in a reversing scenario, wouldn't there be some benefit? Because I, I think, you, you know, you're... Jose Antonio and, and that guy. Yeah, you know. an overfeeding study. Yeah, yeah, um, and those are really interesting studies, and I think it's I think it's one of those things where if you're kind of coming out of something and you're trying to add, add calories back in, um, and you, especially if you're working with somebody who's a little bit afraid of the weight gain, um, you can overshoot the protein, and uh, the potential negatives of that are a lot less than overshooting on the other calories. Um, the, the mechanisms of why that works, we're not really 100% sure. There's some, there's some theories out there, but it's kind of like if you're going to increase calories and you got somebody who you kind of want to walk them up slowly and you don't really want to see too much weight gain, that's usually probably the best macro to kind of add additional stuff to. So there is a, definitely an argument for when you're coming out of a reverse diet. Well, yeah. If you talk to Joey real quick about that study, he said the biggest complaint they had by far was that I'm so friggin' stuffed, I can't eat any more damn protein. <laughs> yeah. So they were complaining that they were full all the time from trying to eat that amount of protein, which was a very high amount. Yeah, yeah, that, that can be a bit of a consequence. And anybody who's tried to eat a lot of lean protein realizes, like, you get to a point where you just, oh. like... You just hate chicken, right? Um, that hurts. You're like, I can't chew anymore. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> the um, So, uh, John was asking, if you have a 200-pound male average athlete and he wants to get to 180, do we use 180 or current weight to calculate the macros? So, Mike would give you a little bit of an answer there. What I think you're suggesting actually puts the cart before the horse as it relates to how we do it. Now, you know, if you just want to guess, you know, then you can do it that way. But what I'm saying is, is that, you know, there is a better way. You can have that athlete, like for instance, if, if the athlete's 200 pounds and we're assuming that he's overeating, why not take a month of having that athlete track to find out where his calorie baseline is and then work off of that baseline? Instead, we're just guessing, we're calculating macros, assuming that he's overeating, when in fact, maybe he's not, right? And so if you said to that, that person, hey, within a month, 
I can have you tracking all your food and then we can come up with a really intelligent way of coming at the deficit or we can just guess and hope for the best. How's that been working for you? Right? So that would be my argument. But I mean, any, any thoughts on, on, you know, how he would create the deficit? Cause actually, even as he's saying it, I, I was thinking to myself, that's not the way that, that I do it. Go ahead. I would do something very similar. I mean, I would look at uh, getting a baseline. And what you find a lot of times is that people are just completely oblivious to what they eat, right? You know, and so a lot of times people are like, oh, but I know exactly for my three-day recall, which is the most basic thing I have new to start, I know exactly what I ate the past three days. I'm like, okay, that's okay, but I want you to do this going forward. And yes, I do know that for the first three days, they're probably going to change how they eat and all that kind of stuff. And it's not going to be mover accurate for just three days. But my point in having them do that is also getting them some level of awareness. So they are more aware of what they, oh, wow, that's a lot more than I thought. Right. So the next step you can go in is, I now want you to weigh and measure everything. So not just guess, oh, it looks like a bunch of rice, you know. Um, actually measure so they have an idea of portion control and things of like that. So a lot of it, I think, is also building that level of awareness in addition to getting the numbers that you see. So let me give you an example just to directly address John's question. So let's, you know, I, I am 180 pounds, so, um, you know, I know the exact calories that I eat, so let's assume that your athlete eats that much. So now all of a sudden, your athlete's at 2,700 and you want him to reduce to 1700. Now, we're just gonna assume that at this point that the math is all congruent and everything will work perfectly. Basically, that athlete would have to be at 1700 calories as an average over the course of 20 weeks, right? And my argument to you is that it would not be congruent. It would get real difficult, real fast for that athlete and you'd be much better off breaking it into two cycles where ultimately it would take the athlete about six months to, to do it. Now, you know, there are instances where, you know, you know, somebody's getting married, somebody's trying to make a weight class, you know, where they have to kind of do that extreme. But if your athlete does not have a timeline, and, you know, I think this idea of I need to lose 40 pounds or I need to lose 20 pounds. When you do that, it's almost like a wish. And if you were to say to that athlete, hey, look, if we can take you from from 2700 to an average of 2200 and then in five weeks you've lost five to eight pounds and then we reassess from there. You know, what the way that we do it is basically eight to 10 weeks, then we'll have the athlete reset in a, in a six month time frame that might be a two month reset and then the extra 10 pounds and that's more sustainable. In your scenario where the athlete goes from 200 pounds to 180 pounds, they're more likely to gain a lot of the weight back, potentially even more, you know. And my argument is that the slower that you can do it, the, the less athleticism you'll lose in that process. And ultimately, you'll be able to keep that work capacity 
and that will allow that athlete to stay to get to 180 and stay there. Um, any thoughts before we move on? Um, any any changes that you guys might do? Because you know, I what I don't want is people to think, well, this is all static, and we do every this one thing for all athletes. Because sometimes you change it. Yeah, it's a good good question to ask. And then is, do you want faster results that are less sustainable? Or do you want a little bit slower results that are more sustainable? And they can pick one or the other, right? Because everyone, if you ask them, they go, well, I want the fast results that are sustainable. Well, <laughs> doesn't really quite work that, work that way. And if they say, I want to be X weight by X day, okay, you know, that's their goal, but they have to know, and we'll have a long conversation right that it's going to be a trade-off and that you cannot expect to stay at that weight most likely the rest of your life then. Right, you have to be okay going into this that is probably going to go back up again versus oh, I'm going to take a little more time and I'm not going to see these rapid changes as fast, but it's going to be more sustainable and, you know, that type of thing. So it's a so that they're aware that mentally they know what trade-off they're making. Well, and one of the things that we really haven't talked about at this point is the other way to get fat loss, right? And the other way to get fat loss is to stay at a relatively, you know, it's called a recomp, but you know, in general, you know, I'm not a huge recomp guy. You know, I think a lot of times you'd be better off kind of allowing for three to five pounds gain. But what we're talking about with Eat to Form, the big thing that I think makes Eat to Form different than virtually everything else out there is the fact that you get fat loss on the way up and then you get fat loss on the way down. And the more you're able to acclimate to that number while your work capacity is high and you're not dieting you're more likely to add lean tissue assuming that your training is going you know the way that you would like it to go that you are pushing yourself significantly and then ultimately you're you know you're not you know atrophying in that process right um in, any thoughts on that brad before we we move on because we have a few more questions and we'll try and get through them as quickly as possible yeah, um, the only thing I would mention is you have to remember that when you're working with an athlete, um, try to find out to them, for them, kind of like Mike said, is how key is it performance and where they're at in their training cycle and their life because um, that big of a calorie deficit or trying to take it, approach it that way is you're going to have um, a lot of detriment and a lot of performance loss. So those are other conversations besides just how fast you want to reach there is how much are you willing to let your performance and your quality of life suffer while you're doing it? Yeah, and everybody on day one is like, I'm really willing. And then on day 14, they're like, screw this. You know, uh, my I lost 50 pounds on my squat. Um, so Jeff's asking a great question. So does it make sense to be concerned about quality of carbs or glycemic index? Or is 100% of carbs, regardless of source, equal? Brian, why don't you take this since we've kind of been monopolizing the time from you? Um, so it it depends on what you're talking about. So if you're talking about just straight weight loss um, or fat loss, it doesn't really make a huge difference. Uh, if you're talking about trying to get something, eating something right before a workout, it can. Um, so generally... In terms of just straight weight loss or fat loss, don't worry about it too much. Um, if you're trying to 
get something quick in before you go get a workout in. Um, something that's a little bit easier digesting, like uh, a carb shake, a banana, some rice um, is going to be a lot more beneficial than something like a huge bowl of oatmeal or some like really heavy, heavy, um, complex carbohydrates. Yeah, I think I think the other thing too is starches. You know, um, are are very beneficial. I'm sorry if if you covered a little bit of that. I was trying to read through some of the questions so so we can kind of answer. But I think that certainly a starch would be more beneficial than refined sugar, right? Mm -hmm. And and you know, sort of the idea. Like, for instance, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot is if it fits your macros, right? And the argument that I've always made, I don't know if it's an argument because I don't really have a problem with if it fits your macros other than the fact that the good majority of them are dieting all the time, right? When we're talking about if it fits your macros, almost always we're really not expanding work capacity. Right, we're always trying to stay within a set amount of macros, and if you don't pursue that, and some, you know, some people would argue that, well, certainly you could do that, but I'm saying the good majority of people aren't doing that, and they would be better off if they weren't continuously compromising their their metabolism. In that way, starches are going to be more beneficial. Starches are also going to be more beneficial in terms of satiety, right? So. Um, when we're talking about like blood sugar changes and things of this nature, you know, refined sugar isn't going to be as positive as as uh, a starch in that instance. You're shaking your head, yes, Mike. I was just gonna say, also, I think of it in terms of the amount of micronutrition you get, right? So if you're comparing the same macros of a sweet potato versus a bowl of fruity pebbles, and everyone loses their mind, right? that there is, you know, macros are similar, but from a micronutrition standpoint, obviously the sweet potato is going to be a lot higher, right? And I'm not saying one is good or one is bad or any of that kind of stuff, but I think the if it fit your macros crowd tends to not look at micronutrition overall. And again, that's a little bit more a marker of health than performance. Um, and if we look at a big level, it's pretty rare that anytime you increase the quality of something that there's any real downsides to that whether it's training, whether it's anything else. So I'm a big fan of eat as high a quality food as you can, but you don't have to go completely off the deep end with that either. So everyone wants to be polarized one end or the other. Yeah, and I think the other part of the discussion is that we're talk as we're talking about eating higher, qual or higher amounts of calories, that micronutrition becomes much easier, right? So if yeah. you're eating 2,700 calories, it's much easier to get in a certain amount of vitamins. So when you're cutting and when you're doing kind of one of the cycles that we were talking about earlier where you look at 8 to 10 weeks where you're trying to lose a certain amount of weight, you're really going to be benefited from having more whole foods in that scenario, right? So if you're normally used to eating 2,700 calories and then you go down to 2,200 and like Mike is saying – you're a little bit more on the fruity pebbles side of things than you are on the lean chicken side of things. Don't be surprised if your hunger signaling is affected negatively by how flexible you're trying to eat at that point. Doesn't mean that you can't eat more flexibly the good majority of the time, but it does mean that if you're in a cut, you're probably better off with more whole foods. Anybody disagree with that? 
agree. Oh. Okay. So, hey Paul, I actually got I got a yeah, no problem, quick, no problem. The uh, you know we this is this is you know kind of an hour optional. Uh, we did sort of ask Brad; he was he was kind enough to make the hour. We only have probably three or four more questions, Mike. So if if you have to leave, I can kind of address no those as well. But um, awesome! Thanks, thanks for being here, Brad. Everybody. We'll uh, catch you on the in the car. Nope. So no problem, cool. brother. Thank you, guys. So we'll get to Crystal's question last, but uh, Jeff Johnson is asking, can you talk more about the reset? And I think what he's talking about is basically reverse dieting. I have to be honest with you. I'm not totally sure um, what he's talking about in terms of the reset because I feel like we've sort of covered. Um, it's just a period of time where you're slowly trying to work your calories back up to a higher level. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, Jeff, if you think of anything that, you know, hasn't been covered, uh, maybe I just don't understand your question. So, so you know, we'll try and hang on and answer that. But um, in general, we'll move to Crystal's question, which I believe is the last one. So Crystal's saying, and it's kind of a long one. Um, let's see. Let's see, because it's kind of hard to... Okay, scenario, client has been eating at TDE for several months and gone through different cycles or stages of training during that time. Last couple months, volume and intensity of training has decreased as workload has increased. Okay, if they're looking to improve body composition in the next few months, how would you approach that? Keep her at TDE macros, working on increasing volume, increasing intensity of training, or put it through a sort of PFFL and tweaker macros. I'm not sure if this question is directly relevant to this webinar or not. No, it's fine. It's a fine question. I, I think that we need to sort of define uh, workload. And so let's, let's see. I'm, the last couple months, the volume and intensity of, of training has decreased basically meaning less sets and reps and workload has increased are you understanding that part mike because i'm not completely understanding because the way that i would read volume and intensity would be you would be doing more sets and reps in that scenario but she's saying intensity of training has decreased as workload has increased that would seem to suggest we're talking about more like cardio type stuff. Is that your assumption yeah, as well? Yeah, unless she's using workload to talk about outside aerobic training or cardio or something maybe. Okay, she's saying workload is increased weight in lifts. So basically, we're talking about the athlete working at maximal capacity. Ah, uh, uh, okay. There we so go. Kind of like okay. Yeah, I mean, my what I would do first is I'm a big fan of volume. You know, kind of the middle of the road, pretty easy-ish volume, you know, whether it's some of the stuff is, you know, five reps-ish, you know, for the strength range, three to five, and even adding in some hypertrophy stuff. So I would look at the overall amount of volume that's split up over the week, and I would slowly try to increase that over the next couple of weeks, maybe over a, uh, probably a three to six week block, usually works pretty good for most athletes, and then see what uh, happens from that. So that's kind of where I would start with that. Yeah. You know, I don't know that we covered this great, but this was actually, you know, one of the big changes that we've sort of made 
throughout this whole process is when, especially when an athlete is cutting, we actually move them to a little bit more rest, a little bit more hypertrophy, and that way they can get in work and they can get in volume. One of the things that Crystal's talking about, and I think that, you know, when you think of a power lifter, right? So they're working at maximal weights a lot. So therefore, maximum intensity. Very big strain on the central nervous system. And so the amount of overall work tends to be compromised. And so you can look at a little bit of, of, of you know, uh, increased stored fat as a process just because overall work volume isn't high, right? So oftentimes, you know, an athlete, power lifter, puts on 20 pounds as an example, and they can magically lift more weights. Well, you know, there's a lot of reason for that. And so when you look at weight classes, you don't see these huge jumps unless you're kind of a new trainee. But I'm talking about somebody that's, you know, been training for 10, 15 years. You know, if you're trying to stay at, say, 220, you're not going to see the types of jumps that you would have if you just provided yourself with a constant source of source of energy and then wasn't concerned about your weight. Right. So. Yeah, that would be my argument is as we're talking about body composition, if we're looking at, you know, reducing calories in that process, you definitely don't want to be looking at a lot of maximal training because you can't get in the volume. You know, some walking, some lists, those things tend, tend to be favorable. Yeah, and one thing on that too, I think people forget that one way to increase volume is just by adding more frequency. So if you're lifting three days a week, you may be able to add a upper body dude bra hypertrophy type day or lower body, you know, hypertrophy type stuff, you know, nothing, you're not burning yourself out to failure, you're just going in and getting some high quality work in and most people recover pretty well from that too, so. All right, so that pretty much covers uh, the questions for this course. I appreciate everybody. I'm hoping I didn't miss any questions. I am going to try and see if I can find those original uh, uh, original videos and then tag Chris in that um, thread. So appreciate everybody being here and we'll talk to you guys later. Bye now. Cool. Thanks guys. See ya.